If you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 5. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. We've been in a study in the book of Acts over the past few weeks. Uh, The book of Acts is the story of the beginning of the church, of what we call the church. That is the called out people of God in the time of the New Testament and beyond. Uh, The writer here is a guy named Luke. Uh, Luke records for us what could be called church at square one, the the beginnings, the origins. We're seeing the church forming. It's in formation. It continues to be in formation. This church church here we, we see is the beginning of a new community of God's people, one that is in contrast with the rest of the world. But... It's called to be on mission in the world. That, that's the, the tension that exists. It is a, a community uh, that exists uh, in the world, but it has a mission to share the good news of Jesus with the world. This tension, though, brings conflicts, inevitable conflicts. In this world, we will have tribulation, we will have oppression, we will have suffering. The Bible is very clear about that. Suffering is not optional for the Christian life. The disciples had already been told this. In the book of Matthew, Jesus writes this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as it is known. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This isn't to play the victim, it's just to say this, that if we follow Jesus the way that the Bible calls us to, it's going to be in conflict with the way of the world. That's what the book of Acts is showing to us. Already in the book of Acts, we have seen in chapter 4 how this new, young church has come into conflict with the religious leaders. In chapter 4, we see them getting uh, told to, to shut it down, to be quiet, to not talk about this person of Jesus anymore. And as we come to our passage this morning, we're going to see it even more. Verses 12 through 16 record for us what led up to the second wave of persecution that we'll see this morning. Look at verses 12 through 16 with me. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, or porch, None of the rest dared join in. The people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes multitudes of people, of men and women. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. And as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall upon some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Here again in the book of Acts, we see how the acts of Jesus in the Gospels are being continued by the Holy Spirit through his apostles. You remember in the the Gospels that that Jesus was regularly uh, doing things, doing miracles, doing signs, healing people. And as we continue into the book of of Acts, this this record of of what happens after Jesus left this earth, we see that his work continues through his spirits by his apostles. We find these apostles and the people of God were gathering. 
they're gathering at, at the temple. Now, the temple was an area. It wasn't just one building. It was an area. And the place that they were gathering was called Solomon's Portico or, or Solomon's Porch. And so they were habitually or regularly gathering there. And it says they were in one accord. If you've been with us, you might recognize that phrase. We saw that phrase back in chapter 1, that this group of, of people were, were of one accord, which means they were in fellowship. They were in unity together. They had a, a unification to their assembly, that being the work of Jesus. And we're finding that many signs and wonders were being done, <clears throat> to which there were, there were two responses. In verse 13, we see a, a response of reservation. Look, look at it again in verse 13. None of the rest dared to join in, but the people held them in high esteem. So some didn't want to be part, part of this. They, they were afraid. They were alarmed by what they were seeing. And you might remember just at the beginning of this chapter, we saw some other things that God was doing and that God judged Ananias and Sapphira. These people would have been aware of that as well. So they're seeing these Christians hanging out, these people of God gathering together, and they're kind of like, I'm not sure I want to get into that, right? But they were being held in high esteem or they were being magnified. The church was different. These people, these Christians were different than the rest of the world, and it was noticeable. Second response we see in verse 14 is that there was conversion happening. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So some people were, were, were scared off by what God was doing, and others were drawn to it, right? And that's still the response to the gospel, by the way. That's still the response to Jesus, some are drawn to it and some reject it. You either reject it or you believe it. Maybe um, you would identify with one of those groups this morning. Or maybe I want to ask, do you identify with one of those groups this morning? Have you come to see Jesus and you rejected him? Or have you come to Jesus in faith? The one who saw the work of Jesus, for fear they rejected him. The others saw the work of Jesus and were drawn in to faith in him. But verse 15 tells us that the movement kept growing and people were experiencing physical healing and spiritual freedom. They were being healed and they were being delivered from demons. The church was experiencing unity. They were being magnified or being held in high esteem and they were multiplying. This is what was going on. Like this is the picture. Right after the whole Ananias and Sapphira debacle, we see now the church is, is moving forward. Good things are happening, and that is exciting. But as we learned last week, whenever something beautiful is trying to come into the world, there's also something opposing that beauty and trying to destroy that beauty. God's power was on display here in this part of the chapter as it was earlier with Ananias and Sapphira. And all of this rightfully or obviously, caught the attention of the religious leaders who were not happy with this. They weren't happy with this rival group meeting in the temple, this rival group that was speaking something different than what they were saying. One commentator observes that faithful gospel ministry results in opposition and blessing. Opposition and blessing. Throughout the rest of this chapter, we can see a few of the responses that, that, that we find to truth. When truth is presented, what do people do? We see three responses here. In the very next verses, we see what the council does. Look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, 
that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. The actions of the apostles provoked another attack. Right? We saw it earlier in chapter 4 that this was, was brought on by the religious leaders, an attack on the apostles. Now we see it here again, that they, they attacked them by arresting them and putting them into prison. You might still say, why, why, does, why do they care? Why do they care about this little band of, of uh, misfits here, these people that are opposing them? Why, why are they so concerned? Well, there's a few reasons that they did this. One is that the apostles had disobeyed their previous warning. You might remember back in chapter 4, they told them, stop it. And the apostles haven't stopped. And so they are, they're dis, disobeying. So that would be a reason to um, go back at them. Secondly, the apostles' power <clears throat> and their popularity was increasing. And if, if you are built, if your life and your, your, uh, your existence is built on power and popularity like the religious leaders were, this is a problem. There's, there's, a, there's, a new, uh, there's a new sheriff in town, so to speak, right? And they're rising, and more attention is being drawn away from the religious leaders. There's also a, a difference and a contradiction of doctrine. The apostles were saying things that, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not believe, that was going against the religious establishment at that time. And fourthly, the, the council was plain prideful. that <laughs> They were jealous of, of what was happening, and they wanted it to stop. Jealousy, we find, leads to other sins. We see it here in the council, and we can see it in our own life as well. But these two groups, the apostles and the council, uh, couldn't be more different, right? We have, on the one hand, these apostles who were ordinary men. They were untrained men, and yet God was doing something very powerful through them. And then we find these, this, this council was full of well-educated, ordained men, and yet they had no power. God was not at work in them. We see these apostles were, were willing to give up their lives. They were willing to risk their lives for the gospel. On the other hand, we see this council who were not willing to risk their lives. They were willing to take other people's lives in order to protect themselves. We see a selflessness in the, the apostles and a selfishness in the council. But Luke records for us that night that they were arrested and imprisoned, an angel comes and releases them. There's a couple kind of funny things about that. The first is the irony is that the Sadducees, the very people who, who um, imprisoned them, one of the things they did not believe in were angels. And God used an angel that night to open the doors and free the apostles. Second, that the, the act of imprisoning the, the apostles was meant to stop the work of God. It was meant to stop the miracles. It was trying to prevent it. And it actually only gave opportunity for another miracle. And when we see that there's an angel, there's a release, and then a few verses later, we find that there's, the guards are puzzled as to what has just happened. One scholar calls this the echo of Jesus' resurrection. Right? Angels, a release, and confused guards, right? Do you see it? God freed the apostles physically so that by proclaiming the gospel, others could be freed spiritually. That's why they were freed. 
They were freed so the message of the gospel would continue to be proclaimed. After they were freed, the angel told them to go to the temple and speak to the people, in verse 20, all the words of this life, the words of eternal life. The apostles disobeyed the council in order to obey the angel, obey the Lord. Can you imagine this exchange? They look at it in verse 21. Now when the high priest came, those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. Okay, so they all gathered together. They said, okay, now we're ready for, to bring in, in the apostles. Verse 22. And when the, and the officers came, they did not find in the prison, uh, them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But we opened them and found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests had heard these things, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what, this would, what would come of this. Uh, verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men who you put into prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Can you imagine this, this exchange, right? We're ready to, to bring in the prisoners. The prisoners are not here. <laughs> Where did the prisoners go? They're doing the very thing that they were just imprisoned for doing. Okay, let's try it again. Verse 26, so the captain and the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So they rearrest them again. So this is the third arrest, if you're keeping track. Chapter 4, chapter 5, and now chapter 5 again. They are rearrested. What we're finding here is this, that man's attempt to stop the progress of God has and will always fail. It has always failed and it will continue to fail. God will build his church in not even the, the gates of hell, not the religious establishments, not the world itself can stop it. That is good news for us today. Men try, men try to stop the gospel. Men try to stop the word of God. Around the world, there is oppression against Christians to stop talking about Jesus. And yet, even as they seek to kill Christians, the church of God stands. It has stood and it will stand. This is good news for us, especially on, in uncertain times. Think of the, the hymn, Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Part of the lyrics go like this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. God will triumph, right? We're seeing it here. We're seeing it here in this attempt, attempt to stop the gospel, and yet it's not working. The, the council sought to oppose, it sought to um, attack, and it didn't work. Verses 27 through 32 talk to us about what the, the apostles did next. And when they had brought them in, they, they wanted to question them. In verse 28, they say, We strictly charged you to, teach, uh, to not teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. As they question the apostles, know, know what they avoid. Do you see what they avoid? They avoid saying the name Jesus. Speak in this name, this man's blood. They won't even say the name. Um, the council had told them not to speak about Jesus, and yet they were teaching about Jesus. 
Um, and they were upset about that. They were upset that they were disobeying the order, and they were upset that they were intending to put this man, that's Jesus' blood, on them. Right? That's, they, they were saying, you're accusing us of killing Jesus, which they did. Right? They, they weren't doing anything wrong. They were telling it the way it was. Luke recounts the apostles' response to this in verse 29 through 32. It is yet another display of how God um, prepares for his people what to say at the time they need to say it. Jesus told his disciples this was going to happen. You're going to be brought before religious leaders, and you can know this, that in that hour, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say, and he did. Look at verse 28. This is their response. They, they start, start by defending themselves. We must obey God rather than man. We must obey God rather than man. The apostles were men of Christian conviction, not Christian convenience. They were willing to stand up for Jesus even when it wasn't popular. They could have compromised right here. They could have went along with it. They could have said, okay, we'll stop talking. They could have lied and said they'd stop talking and then kept talking. But that's not what they did. They were honest men of conviction and said, guess what? We must obey God rather than man. They said something similar in chapter 4. We can't help but speak of this name. We can't help but tell what we have already seen. Now, it is true that Christians are instructed to submit and to obey our leaders. The Bible is clear about that. God has given to them authority. However, civil disobedience or holy disobedience is not over laws that we don't like, which surely we could all name a few laws we don't like. Rather, it is about laws that contradict God's law or said differently this, when man's law forbids what God requires or requires what God forbids, it is the duty of the Christian to civilly disobey. Didn't get amen on that. I'll say it again, give you a second chance. When man's laws forbid what God requires or requires what God forbids, it is the duty of the Christian to civilly disobey. Amen. Amen. And friend, that day may come. And we can, we can amen it here, and we should amen it here, but you may have to amen it out there. There's a day coming, and it's not far. And there are men and women, Christian men and women who are who are even now, their allegiance to Jesus is being tested. The question of whether or not you will believe what Jesus said or you will not believe what Jesus said. We in America have not had to be called to the carpet yet, but we will. May we be ready. May God give to us this kind of faithfulness. These apostles knew they knew that their ultimate allegiance was to Jesus, so they were willing to stand and be counted. But that's not all they said. They didn't just defend themselves. They went on in verse 32. Look at it. Excuse me, verse 30. And he says this, Peter and the apostles. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, 
whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Uh, Peter never misses an opportunity for the gospel. Notice that. He is, he is being persecuted. His life is on the line. They're saying, why are you, why are you continuing to disobey us? And Peter doesn't miss the opportunity to give a, a, a very, very short gospel summary, but to speak of Jesus. And friend, you and I ought not to miss those opportunities either. It may not come in, in quite the same setting as this. It may come in a, a much more quiet way. It may come in a less hostile way. It may come in a time where someone is actually ready to receive it, but we better be ready to speak it. Don't waste the opportunity to speak about the work of Jesus. And what is the work that he speaks about? He speaks about the death of Jesus, and he calls them out again. This is, if you're keeping track, this is the fourth time that Peter has said to these leaders, you killed Jesus, and God raised him from the dead. Like two things. They killed him, but God raised him. The resurrection is necessary. It's absolutely necessary for the gospel. And Peter continues to bring it up. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. And that's not all he said. Then he goes into um, an exaltation, that God exalted him, brought him up to heaven, to the right hand as leader and savior. Some of your Bibles might say prince and savior. And why? Why is he the savior? What did he say for? To give repentance. Again, Peter is always calling back to repentance. The gospel is not just that Jesus died for you and, and that's good. It's not just that he offers you salvation. It's that you must respond in repentance. For what? Peter says, for the forgiveness of your sins. If you have no sin, then Jesus' work is irrelevant. Peter is saying the reason Jesus died is because you are a sinner and you need to be saved. That's not to say something necessarily bad about someone in particular. It's to say that we're all sinners. And if we weren't, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. But he did. He did come. And he did die. And Jesus was resurrected by the Father. Why? In order that we might have forgiveness of our sins through repentance and faith. That's true today. If you're with us today and you don't know Jesus, hear the words that Peter says to those religious leaders who thought they were right, who thought they were all good. Peter's preaching the gospel to them too. So maybe you're sitting in here and you've heard it all before. You know all this stuff. Hear it again if you don't believe it yet. Hear it again that there's one who died for you, that was raised from the dead, that took your death in order that you might have Life. Verse 32 tells us that this is what they were witnessing about. We were, we're, this is what we do. The apostles, this is what we do. We witness about what Jesus has done. And the Holy Spirit's a witness too. And the Holy Spirit is with us. That's what he's saying there. Well, verse 33 tells us that the council wasn't moved. They, there was not a, an altar call at this point. There was no clapping. There was no shaking hands with the preacher on the way out, telling him how good he did. There was none of that. They were saying, actually, we want to kill you, right? I'm thankful that I haven't had that experience quite yet here. Um, but if I preach the gospel and someone wants to kill me, then maybe we are doing the right thing. Here's the point. They're ticked off, right? They're mad. Why are they mad? Because they are 
something is conflicting with what they believe. You know what? That's what the gospel does. The gospel, why, why, is it so, why, is it, why does it bother people? Why can't just you believe what you want to believe, we believe what you, you want to believe, right? Why is it such a conflict? Because it's saying that you can't do it on your own. The gospel is, is saying that you have a problem and Jesus is the only answer. And if you don't like Jesus, you don't want to hear that because you want to have your own answer. My goodness or my way or my truth. And the gospel is saying, it's cutting all of that to the heart and saying, no, there's only one way and it's Jesus. Well, that fires some people up. It still does today. And these people were ticked. When we're confronted with Jesus, we have one of two things. We either crown him, we either agree that he's Jesus and king, or we want to kill him. We want to eliminate him. We want to get rid of him in our life. Well, the religious establishment went with plan B. Right? They went with kill. They went to try to eliminate, try to stop what was going on. And here we see the apostles faithful, faithful in the midst of the opposition of these religious leaders, even when it seemed like there's no way out of this thing. We're going to read the rest of the story and see there's a way out, but they didn't know that. And yet they're faithful. They wanted to kill them. But right then, a Pharisee steps in, of all things. A well-respected Pharisee named Gamaliel. And he steps in to offer some advice. God actually uses a Pharisee here to preserve the apostles. That's what he's doing. God sovereignly is, is using this man to prevent what is seemingly going to happen. This is divine intervention or human intervention for a divine purpose. And we can know this, that God is sovereign over all things. He was sovereign in this moment and he's sovereign in your life too. Now he might not intervene with an angel releasing you from prison. He might not intervene with a Pharisee to keep you from being killed. But we can know this, that God is with you in all of it. So the day might come when when you experience uh, opposition, when you're called to, to bear witness, and God might not intervene. We read through the rest of the Bible, we read through church history, and God doesn't always intervene. The Christians have been killed for their faith. God did not intervene for Jesus. Right? God, we're going to see in a few chapters, God didn't intervene for Stephen. And yet, we know that God is with us even in it all. He sees, he knows, he cares, he is with us. Well, this Pharisee steps in. And we'll just summarize what this Pharisee has to say. Pharisee basically says this. Hey, um, settle it down a little bit. And so he puts the, the apostles out and says, let, let me tell you something. Uh, here's some history. There's two guys that uh, in the past have, uh, have, have tried to uh, kind of undermine the establishment. A guy named Theodos and a guy named Judas. Judas of Galilee the Galilean. And both of them, they, they got a following together and they kind of, uh, you know, tried to mount a little insurrection. And yet, um, some of them got killed and it kind of just petered out. So Gamaliel says, listen, so just relax a little bit. If it's nothing, if this, this movement is nothing, it'll just die out. But if it's something, meaning if it's from God, then you're going to find out that you're fighting against God. And you probably don't want to be on that side of the equation, right? And so he, he, he settles them down. He tampers down the, the rhetoric and uh, they, they don't agree to kill him at the moment. But Gamaliel, his counsel seemed okay. Seemed uh, maybe okay. At least they didn't kill the apostles right there. But Gamaliel missed a few things. Uh, he was pragmatic, but he was unwise. 
Um, we see it in two ways. One, he, he equates Jesus with these two rebels, which by doing that, he is showing his hand. He is saying that the, Jesus is probably like them. He's avoiding the evidence of who Jesus really was. Also, he is saying the only way we can know if something is true is if it's successful. That's the measurement. The human measurement is success. Success means truth. If it fails, it means it's, it's not true. That's not the measurement. That's not the measurement at all. False cults grow. False teaching grows. It sometimes grows faster and larger than, than churches do. Human measurement of success is not a measurement of truth. The measurement of truth is the scripture. Alignment with the scripture. So Gamaliel had it wrong. He also had it wrong in this way. He's kind of taking what might be called a wait and see approach. Gamaliel is kind of saying, you know, it might be right or it might be wrong. Let's just wait and see. It's a position that sounds like neutrality. But listen, there is no neutrality with God. There is no neutrality. Jesus said it this way, either you are with me or you are against me. There's no neutrality. To say a wait and see approach is indecision is a lie. That is a decision. If today you're sitting there and saying, I haven't made a decision on Jesus, yes, you have. That is a decision. Gamaliel sounds wise, but it's foolish. It's unbelief. It's a position of unbelief. Now, thankfully, his, his advice, however good it was or bad, tempered the council, and they did, it did prevent them uh, from killing them, but it did not prevent them from assaulting them. Look at it in verse 41, pick it up in verse 39. So they, look at, they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles proclaimed Christ, and it cost them. Anybody tells you that coming to Jesus means your life is going to get easier is lying to you. That is not true. In fact, following Jesus is actually a way of suffering. It is a life of suffering. And these Christians, for the first time in the history of the church, experienced suffering. Physical suffering, being persecuted for their faith. And their persecution was they were beaten. The Jewish penalty for being beaten was 39 lashes. The Apostle Paul talks about this later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which he received multiple times. What we find out is hostility follows faithfulness. If you want to be faithful to Jesus, you need to understand that hostility will follow you. That is how it works. This wouldn't be the last time they saw it either. Peter knew this. If you read the epistle of 1 Peter, you see him talking about suffering. He experienced the suffering. He knew what that suffering looked like. He says this in chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator while doing good. Even though they were beaten, even though they were threatened again to stop, the apostles were unchanged in their ministry. They didn't stop. They were committed faithfully to following Jesus. And we see it in verse 41. Look at it. And they left... And they, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The first response we see from that is they, they left rejoicing. This, this verse is, is unbelievable to me. That this is the response to being beaten and threatened. They left rejoicing 
that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. One writer says that this is, this is a, a beautiful antithesis. Honor, the honor to be dishonored. The grace to be disgraced. And can you imagine that? You get beaten, 39 lashes for preaching Jesus, and you go away saying, God counted me worthy to suffer for his name. That's the response. It's not, God, why did you do that? I'm preaching Jesus and I got beat up. That wasn't their response. Why wasn't it their response? That's the response in the Gospels. Jesus told them, blessed, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets and who were before you. Rejoicing in suffering sounds counterintuitive. But it's only counterintuitive if your view of this life is comfort and ease. If your eyes are only on this life and what you can have in this life, you will not desire suffering. You will not take suffering. You will avoid it at all costs. The only way this makes sense is if our eyes are fixed, not primarily on this life or on the material world, but on the eternal world. That's the only way this makes sense. That's the only way you'd give your life for Jesus, is if you actually believe there was something more. John says this in Revelation chapter 12, and they have conquered him, this is uh, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Listen to this. For they loved not their lives uh, even unto death. That means that they, they didn't protect themselves. They weren't so concerned about their physical life that they were willing to, to preserve it at all costs. They actually were willing to give up their lives. We need a better understanding of suffering for the gospel. We need to understand this better. We need to understand that, that suffering for the gospel is connected to the suffering of Jesus as D.A. Carson identifies for us. When we suffer, that is the way of the Christian. But not only were they rejoicing in their suffering, they kept on preaching. Look at verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus or that Christ is Jesus. They didn't stop. They were beaten and they were threatened and they did not stop. And this wasn't uh, them having an attitude of sticking it to the religious leaders. Like, you can't stop me. No, that's not what they were doing. They were saying, we can't do anything other than that. It was a commitment to follow God. Verse 42 also shows us a couple things. How often were they doing this? Once a week? Maybe? No, no, every day in the temple. Where were they doing it? In the temple and from house to house. They did not cease to do what? Teaching and preaching. Preaching has to do with evangelism. Teaching has to do with instruction. So yes, preaching the gospel that others may come to Christ, but also teaching Christians how to follow Jesus and what it means to live for him. Will this kind of faithfulness be said of our church? Will it be said of you? Christian persecution is as real as ever, and it is ongoing. Yet we know this, that God continues to build his church. Persecution does not slow down the advancement of the gospel John Stott says it this way, persecution will refine the church, 
but not destroy it. Persecution will refine us. There will be those who are among us who will not count the cost. They will go out from us because they were never of us, as the gospels say. But hear the words as we close from John chapter 16, verse 33, the words of Jesus. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have trouble or tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The reason the apostles could stand is because they knew this about Jesus. The reason you can stand today is because this is still true for you and me. Let's pray. Father, would you help us this day to be found faithful? When our time comes, when we are, we are called to account, would you give us the grace? Would you give us the words to say, as you promised in the gospels that the Holy Spirit would tell us what to say, would you give us those words then too? We trust you for that. God, I do pray that Christians would live Christianly in the world and know that there is inevitable conflicts. We pray for those with us today who don't know Jesus, who wonder why. Why would we risk our life? Why would we give up our life? All for the name. God, I pray that they would see who that name is. I pray that even today that you would open their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. That you and your love for, for the world sent Jesus to die for us so that our penalty could be removed and we could know you as Father and have a home in heaven. God, would you open the eyes today and through repentance and faith, may they come to know you as their Savior and their Lord. We pray for that now, God. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.